be authentic. Do not try to be something that you're not. That is how you're gonna connect with this particular group. And I think that in the midst of, of that generation, striving to be authentically themselves, but not understanding um, what that means, I, I think that's where that accompaniment piece comes in. The authentic witness of just sharing stories, being very upfront and truthful, and yeah, just being willing to walk alongside. But I see a longing for truth and authenticity. As the contrast grows between the secular culture and the values of Christianity, so does the importance of faithful witnesses who can build bridges to reach new generations. In today's episode, we meet Deanna Johnston, Director of Family Life for the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization, and we learn how she works to bring the wonder of Christian truth and teaching into daily accompaniment. We can't get comfortable as a church just looking at paperwork. We have to look at the situation of the person in front of us because just because this family is also baptizing their child, the circumstances of their journey are different than the person who was just in my office. True leadership, especially in evangelistic and catechetic work, leads us to contemplate the presence of God in the mystery of each human person we encounter. This is Living the Call. Deanna Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you. I mean, there's there in going through some of the bio that you sent me, um, and I knew a little bit about this because we've talked about Sister Josephine, who was on the show recently, and you know she connected us. I did a little bit of research on my own, so I know we have some areas nice. of commonality and overlap, right? Um, both podcasters, we both got deacons in our life. In our life, yes. I'm. I am one for myself, but you've got you've got one in your family. So there's a lot of areas of overlap, and there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, so I, I, I just kind of wanted to to dive right in, um, if you're okay with it, and just yes. get started with kind of who you are and, and and give us a little bit of background on on you, um, you know, where you live and kind of the work that you're doing, and kind of start with that. Yeah, yeah. So um, Deanna Johnston, I'm the I'm currently the Director of Family Life for the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Um, I am a wife and mother. I've been married for eight years. I have four children between the ages of one and six. So awesome. our house is nice and loud and messy, um, but we, we're having a blast. Um, sure. I am a deacon's daughter. I'm originally from the Diocese of Memphis. And right. grew up uh, in Catholic school for 12 years and then ended up um, going to University of Memphis, got my degree in philosophy and Spanish, realized that I really liked mission work. And that took mm -hmm. me to Costa Rica and then a year in Mexico, which eventually led to Dodge City, Kansas, which I didn't realize was a real place until I went there. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely real. Um, the and then OG. just found a heart yep. for found a heart for ministry and um, just really getting involved in the life of the church. Um, and yeah, just being involved in ministry is something that I've been doing since really since grade school as an altar server and then getting involved in junior high. Uh, and then that really led to where I am now, um, working for uh, Bishop Strickland in the Diocese of Tyler. Yeah, love the bishop, and uh, and and the uh, Spanish is another area of our of our overlap, obviously, which yeah. we'll get to in a minute. By the way, the Saint Philip is cool, right? So that's Philip the Evangelist, right? Who's also yes. a deacon. 
Yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. Okay. Is that is that well known in the halls of the St. Philip Institute that we're talking Not, about the yes, diaconate here? I'm actually looking at across the hall from my office. There's the painting mm-hmm. of St. Philip the Deacon and the Ethiopian. But before I um, before I joined the St. Philip Institute, I had never. I never heard the story or realized um, who St. Philip was. So it was exciting to see like, oh, a deacon and just hearing that moment of encounter and evangelization. Like, absolutely. This is exciting. Yeah, Stephen Stephen and Philip are the only one who get kind of uh, naming rights in in the Bible, right, of the seven. (laughs) I mean, obviously they get named. Uh, There's a couple of other guys uh, who we don't kind of see in in evidence later on in Scripture, but Philip and and Stephen tend to get the bulk of the attention. But yeah, but Philip is, and and it, it struck out to me, right? Because it's not oftentimes, you know, we name parishes and churches and things after all, a lot of folks, but that, but Philip is, um, is unusual, right? But, but it goes to the focus of what the St. Philip Institute is about, right? Which is very much based on that exchange with, with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Right, exactly. Where the Ethiopian says, "Well, how how can I how can I know if no one teaches me?" Um, so realizing that we have that responsibility to teach the Catholic faith, and it's not enough to just like send people through programs. Because I think in the church we get real comfortable with checking boxes sometimes, and and sending yeah. folks through um, programs, and then we're kind of hands off. But leading people to an encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, that that's key and that we have to step into people's lives and in the messiness of it all uh, and journey with them from where they're at and not where we assume that they should be. Uh, So yeah, what we're doing in the Institute really is trying to teach the faith to catechize and evangelize and um, yeah, just draw people closer to our Lord. So much of the resistance that we hear right now from the contemporary culture about, you know, teaching of the faith, right, is rooted in an understanding, or m- perhaps misunderstanding is better said, about, you know, the the place that rules or guidelines have with respect to our faith walks, right? They get sort of a bad rap in this—all of it does, right? Catechesis, mm-hmm. apologetics, all these things sometimes can be seen in this sense of like, well, these are all things that are telling me to do something or, or whatever, Put a stricture being put put on me. But I think the story of the Ethiopian eunuch does the exact opposite, which says like, listen, I want to draw closer to the transcendent. And in order to do that, I need to be instructed. How, how did, like, break it down for me inside the Institute. How, how do you guys approach the, the ministry that you do, the work that you do? And do you ever run into situations like the one I mentioned where people are just going like, wait, there's a lot of rules. Like, how does this actually play? Right. Right. So one of the things that really founded our mission was that Bishop Strickland wrote something called the Constitution on Teaching in 2017. And in that document, he really laid out the vision for the diocese where he said from the very beginning, he's like, look, we are, we're sending people through the sacraments and we're realizing that even with all of the formation that we're offering them, there's there's something missing in what we're doing. So yeah. we have to get better at leading people to an encounter. And specifically in my department, so with family life ministry, a lot of what I'm doing is working with engaged couples. When we think about today's engaged couples, while there are some very um, involved couples, very like 
going to mass, involved in parish ministry, a lot of the couples that are coming forward for marriage formation, they are not your typical, like, go to mass every single Sunday or um, maybe they're going twice a year. But for a lot of them, um, they have maybe stepped away from the church or they're off and on or they're getting married in the church because, well, that's what their parents want them to do and they're respecting that or, you know, just trying to be involved a little bit. So what we've really found, especially in marriage formation, is when we are presenting the truth, it can't be a list of rules. And there are rules, right, for getting married in the church. Like there's a formation process that we send folks through. But one of the things that I've learned in the 10 and a half years of being in full-time ministry is that when the rules become more important and the canon law becomes more important than the people we are encountering, we will miss an opportunity to evangelize. So thinking of our audience when we put on a retreat or we have designed these formation programs, whether it's for engaged couples or with the faith formation department and how we're doing sacrament formation, we need to think about where those folks are so that we can walk mm-hmm. alongside them. And it's not like, okay, we're going to drag you to the altar. We're going to drag you sure. to the sacraments, but more like, here's the beauty of what you desire, that w- you're desiring marriage. Um, and we want to affirm that. And we want to accompany you through this process because we want you to have the best marriage ever. And what I have found are just these moments of um, these moments of being able to convey truth in such a way that people you get to and it's not all the time, but being able to see these like light bulb moments for folks um, where just because we invited them or just because we offered an opportunity to encounter God in not necessarily a a program, but even just in offering things like adoration at a retreat or confession, that that has a greater impact than any kind of retreat material that, that we could put together. You talk a lot about your the, the importance of accompaniment. I've seen that mm. in in some of the things that you've talked about um, earlier that I've seen of your work. I know you have a podcast. We'll get to that in a minute as well. But that idea of accompaniment, I mean, it can't be understated, right? And, and if you think about it, it's it should be like the, the, the whole goal is to, the reason we're even here walking around in groups of families or communities is because, you know, God, and to my view, wanted us to have other people's backs and getting home to heaven, right? So like, yes. how do we actually help people who are in our orbit to get home, right? right. And so that idea of accompaniment is really, you know, critical to that. And, and, and it's something that you've hit upon, you know, quite a bit on your work. How, what do you think that maybe some of the errors people, people make um, in ministry or otherwise, in that idea of accompaniment, what are things that we get wrong? Like, why don't we, how do we, how do we give the impression to people that are like, oh, so this is a bunch of rules. Like, yeah. how does that happen? I think what happens a lot of times, and, and I can speak from my experience working in a parish for six and a half years, especially early on, um, for me, one of the things that I had to learn was to see past the paperwork and to look at the person in front of me. Because with bat- like for baptism, for example, when when I worked at the cathedral in Dodge City, there was a process, right? So we got to get we got to get the names of the godparents. We got to find out if the godparents are um, actually eligible to be godparents. And there were a lot right. of times where we had we had to tell people no. It's like, well, your your godparents don't actually go to mass, or your godparents aren't Catholic, um, and 
then like having to be that gate i really and felt what's like the a purpose of being a godparent you know what i mean right. it's like even explaining what a godparent is <laughs> exactly. so you want them to actually if they're going to raise somebody up in the faith they're going to want to like be part of the faith right exactly. i mean that makes sense exactly and it could be frustrating at times because you're like don't you don't you know this like why would you ask someone right. to be a godparent if um if they're not actually living the faith but what i f- i failed to do early on was to recognize like okay Everybody is on their own journey. And while truth is truth and the sacraments, we have to uphold the dignity of the sacraments. We can't um, we can't be wishy-washy with like, oh, well, this time, you know, we'll let you have, you know, your best friend as a godparent, even though they haven't received their sacraments or they're living in sin or whatever. But realizing that we have to pause and see the person in front of us, because I think too often in parish mm. life, especially when you're in a large parish, um, we were in a place um, where it was the it was the only Catholic church in town, and um, I think we had over 4,000 families there, so lots of baptisms, lots of meetings with people, but it could get—we can't get comfortable as a church just looking at paperwork. We have yeah. to look at the situation of the person in front of us, because just because— this family is also baptizing their child. The circumstances of their journey are different than the person who was just in my office. Um, so to have, being able to stop and have a conversation with people instead of trying to throw them into the ringer, basically. Absolutely. Everybody has you know, folks that they particularly pay attention to in their faith walks, and I'm sure you do. One of the people for me has been my older brother, and um, he actually—I've mentioned him often on this show because he's obviously had a great influence on my spiritual walk. He himself is a, uh, is a monk and priest. He's a Benedictine, and he always talks about what you just said, which is that recognition of the person in front of us as really almost the most important person in the world, right? So if we if we think about this idea of the eternal now, which is where God is, and we only have this present moment, then it stands to reason that the person sitting across from you at that moment that God deigned to put in your path, in your mm-hmm. life, has right. got to be the most important person ever because they're right there in front of you and only now exists. And so, but how often, to your point, we forget that, especially in areas of ministry, especially in areas of leadership, where we have a tendency of looking out at our team or the people around us and going like, oh, all these different things, but I've got to get my tasks done, right? Right. But right. what an important reminder what you just said about recognizing the person who's in front of you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. critical. Exactly. Exactly. And what you said, it just it reminded me of St. John Paul II. When you hear people talk about their encounters with JP2, that that's how he treated them. And I, I never got to, I got to see him from a distance when he was in St. Louis, but that, oh, wow. that was one of his gifts was to be able to, when he was talking to you, he was talking to you um, and yeah. you were the only person that he cared. So yeah, to have that type of heart for folks um, when we're when we're encountering them in the church and outside of the church too, but yeah, especially in in ministry. How do people respond to the folks that you talk to there at the institute, and you're talking to them about the beauty of matrimony as an example, this this great good, and you recognize like you must be in a way kind of having two conversations, right? You you're right. having the conversation with the person, but you're also seeing where they are on their faith walk, right? And if right. they're younger, they're a couple coming together. Like, how do you manage that process of, of you know, I'm just reminded of the gospel just this past Sunday was, I have, I have so much to tell you, but you can't bear it, right? right. How do you, how do you like balance that? 
Uh, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we're we're still learning. Um, but the retreat that we offer is called Three to Get Married. And from the very beginning of the retreat, I, I just acknowledge from the very beginning, like, I know that you're here because you have to be here. <laughs> I, I know that mm-hmm. you're you're here because you have to check that box. But we're so grateful, I think, affirming the fact that they are willing to take the time to go through the formation process um, is, a, is a key in the evangelization process there. And then as we go through with our engaged couple, so the retreat is one one aspect, um, Mm -hmm. but being able to acknowledge with couples, um, like, you are doing something that is a really big deal, and we want you to have the best marriage ever. Like, the church actually desires that for you. The church doesn't want you to just get married. The church wants you to have the best marriage ever. And so those couples that we celebrate who are getting celebrating 50, 75 years, we want we want to make sure that you get there too. Um, so being able to, to journey with them. And I think the other important piece um, with the way that we're, we're especially trying to do marriage formation um, with mm-hmm. our engaged couples or even civilly married couples is that we can't just offer like a one-stop shop when it comes to their formation. So they go to a retreat, which is important, but the relationships that they form during their formation time are also key. So using a mentor couple program, we have found mm-hmm. to be like, we. oh my gosh, we, we have yeah. to keep that piece there because what it does is, while yes, we're going through a lot of theology, the theology of mm-hmm. marriage, how beautiful the church's teachings are, um, the other piece of having them journey for nine to 12 months with a mentor couple um, allows them to really encounter the church in a different way, where yes, the retreat mm-hmm. and going to mass, going to adoration, experiencing the sacraments is one thing, but to be able to walk with another married couple who... It makes so much th- sense. Who, you're right. And they're they're yeah. not perfect. <laughs> they're, they're flawed. Sure. They're human, but they're yeah. willing to walk with them through their formation. And then they're there after the wedding too. Um, I think those two, having those both um, as part of the formation experience... I think that's really how we're communicating this uh, to the couples. Yeah. I mean, it makes every industry has like an apprentice expert kind of domain, right? If you want to learn how to do most anything in in, in life, working under someone and seeing how they do it is part of that, at least part of that learning experience. There's the theoretical, the academic, all that stuff. But you're right. And kind of this marriage prep, pretty important thing. Right. Oftentimes, that's something that's not part of it is this idea of, yeah, they're not perfect. Of course, who is? But watching a mentor couple and benefiting from that is 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 super key. In our formation for the diaconate, we likewise had a, a deacon couple that walked with us for the entire five-year mm-hmm. period. And it was some, you know, a couple we could bounce off ideas with and certainly not not perfect like anybody else. But but it was it was cool to be able to to see you know the diaconate and marriage in action and be able to you know ask questions or 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 share what we were learning and have that create conversations. So it was something that was actually very very useful on a practical yeah. level from when we went through. And I can imagine the same is the case is the case here. Yeah, I think we need to do more of that in other aspects of um, of of the life yep. of the church. Like we have sponsors for baptism. Um, where you really see it in the RCIA process. We're really starting to see it now with marriage formation. But how awesome would it be if we had this intentional accompaniment in in different areas? Just I think, yeah, I think it would just go a lot further. I, I agree with you. I think further. it's 
I think that's an insight that could benefit more broadly across the board. But it all, you know, comes back to what, you know, what you said, which is the reason mentors are are valuable is, you know, because it allows us to focus on the individual, the person who's there, and that person can model mm. some of what they're learning after somebody mm-hmm. else. But it, it does, it is all about relationship, all about encounter, all about being close. And that's like, you keep coming back to these general themes when we talk about, about Catholic things. I know you're also, and I'm sure it comes up all the time, very passionate in the, in the context of this kind of, um, work that you do with families um, about family planning mm-hmm. and and about, you know, the great kind of treasure trove of what the church teaches in terms of that subject in a world that could not be more opposite right. to that teaching. <laughs> right. I mean, it, not even close. Right. How many stories do you have about that? Like, I'm sure. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's just it's been so fascinating over the past 10 years of, of learning more about NFP and or natural family planning and fertility awareness. And we joke in the office that I am the person who is, I am very comfortable talking about cervical mucus with anybody, <laughs> like a group oh. of priests, seminarians, like whoever, like let's, let's talk about the beauty of fertility. Um, but like God's design is so, it's so incredible. And I yeah. don't, it is, it is amazing to me how many, and it's sad, how many women I encounter that don't know how their body works, like that their fertility Mm. is actually a good thing um, and that there's a medical side to um, fertility that we don't hear a lot about. So I know a lot of people, when they think of NFP, they think of rules or restrictions or they think of like, oh, well, the church just wants me to have 12 kids. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. really, it's just, it's really been interesting to watch over the past decade how the church has gotten better at communicating um, the science that is behind all of this. And um, I mean, it's a very pro-woman thing when you think about it. I know the church gets criticized a lot about um, about not supporting women or, you know, not doing enough for women. Uh, but really, when we look at fertility awareness, it is it's such a vital sign for health and looking at like expanding that conversation beyond just, NFP because and that that is a good tool. It's a it's a great tool for for couples to be able to you know discern what is God calling us to do right now as far as our family plans and to, just another tool in the toolkit to use. But also as far as women's health, that the information mm-hmm. that we can get from um, from charting or using a particular method of fertility awareness, it is. It is mind blowing <laughs> to me to see it really is. Um, just how it can um, how it can minister to people, but also just how it can. It's very holistic, a holistic view of the human person, um, and that it's it's also combined fertility when we're talking about it in the context of of married life. So yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> about that, but, well, I think that one yeah. of the things about about that subject, though, because it is very misunderstood, even by, I mean, to you know, to your point, I'm sure even by most Catholics that don't understand what the church teaches, what it even is, see it as a variety of rules or, or other things. But I think the other thing about, um, you know, NFP as an example is that it creates a lot of proximity and unity and closeness between the man and woman, right? Mm. Yes, you learn a lot about the physical inner workings, which are is miraculous. Right. I mean, I still don't understand everything, but I've gotten a lot better <laughs> over the years. But it's miraculous in and of its own right. But then the proximity, the growth, the bonds that can grow 
between yes. man and woman by virtue of that knowledge and understanding right. exactly what's happening. I mean, that's exactly. the part that it was most interesting to me. Yeah. And I think with that as well is as a church, one of the things that, that I have felt strongly about is that as a church, especially when we're talking to couples about all of this, is that we have to also communicate that this will require sacrifice and it will not it will not be easy and it and it would be easier to just pop a pill or um sure. to put in a diaphragm or you know IUD or, or whatever but choosing to entrust your fertility into God's hands it can be scary <laughs> mm-hmm. it can be scary sometimes to realize like okay we're we're charting or we are we're we're discerning that okay right now we're we're not called to have children or we're trying to have children but that ultimately that is in God's hands that is yeah. a process and it's something that my husband and I even had to learn when um it, it's interesting. when we got married in October of 2013 I had actually just finished my um, certification process for the Billings ovulation method so I was now able to teach it had been charting for a while as a single person but then got certified so mm-hmm. I could start teaching in my parish and I remember feeling this pressure in the beginning that, okay, we we just got married and I just got certified, so I need to prove that NFP works, so we we probably shouldn't Ooh, have kids for a while. And there was this mm. there was this like tension of like, okay, we we can't get pregnant yet. And it and it's silly when I look back on it and it makes me laugh when I think about how worried I was about getting pregnant and people assuming that NFP doesn't work. And now I have I have four kids and they're between the ages of one and six. Um, but our journey is, oh man, God has been so, so good. And I think before, or especially early in marriage, I really assumed that, okay, if I'm going to be a good representative of NFP or like what the church teaches, I need to make sure we follow that NFP profile couple, right? So we have our children (laughs) perfectly spaced two years apart, and then everyone will know that it works. But what God has done over the last eight years of our marriage is really shown us that when when we entrust that part of our marriage to him, when we give him everything, including our fertility, he is not outdone in generosity. And I mean, there's so many stories I could, I could share about just how God has been so faithful for us and that the timing of our children's births has been perfect. And there is no, I look at all four of them, like, yes, all of you are supposed to be here. Um, And even though I didn't see that back in 2013, when we got married, um, that God's plan is is so much better. So when we're communicating this to like engaged couples, because they're required to go through and, and learn what NFP is, and we talk about it at the retreat, the one thing that I that I just really try to convey to couples is if you trust God with this, you will not be disappointed. It won't be easy, because I think that's another mistake that's made sometimes is we're like, oh, sure. NFP is the easiest thing. It's so great. You're going to love it. Um, no. <laughs> There's, there's sometimes but, where it's really frustrating. For sure. But isn't, that, isn't that true of all faith? All faith right. is simple, but not easy. Yes, simple, but exactly. not easy. Like God's That's ways are, point. you know, the, it's the right thing, but it's not necessarily easy to do. When you talk to these young couples and you say this and you talk about NFP, like what kind of responses do you typically get from them? It's, it's a wide range because I know that there are couples that are like, okay, well, we were told that, you know, we, we need to be prepared 
before we can have a child. <laughs> like we need to have X number of dollars sure. in the bank. And I affirm that like you want to be prepared, you want to be responsible parents, but helping to like change the mindset a little bit. And we also recognize like I'm planting seeds. Like that's my job is to plant seeds. And and this one talk may not be the thing that gets them to stop using birth control or to, you know, pick a method of, of fertility awareness and stick with it. But mm-hmm. I think my hope is that if they can see the joy that these couples that are part of the team, if we can create a culture where um, being open to life is a is something that is celebrated, that is normal, and that yeah, like not worrying so much about having this perfect plan because I mean the truth is you aren't you're never ready <laughs> for for another yeah. baby like you're never ready. There's always it's a reason. true. You're it's like simultaneously <laughs> never ready and, si- and really always ready. You know what I mean? It's right, like it's, exactly. a, it's a crazy thing because to your point, when it happens and you look back and you're like, well, how else could have this ever been? And that's that's just God's amazing timing. But you're right about the obstacles that the world puts in front of us in terms of look, you got to get this amount of cash. Uh-huh. You got to be set the right place in your career. Right. Let's wait until that promotion. <laughs> There's always something there. Have you ever had anybody just rebel and like say, hey, I'm not going to do this? Has there ever been any? I I mean, I know that it exists there. When we do our Q&A sessions, there's always questions about like, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm a nurse, so I'm going to trust my own training or, um, mm. and even there we have opportunities to address like, okay, well, Actually, the things that are taught about NFP in medical school are not, they're, it's not the full story. So being able to show how the the medical side and the science, so we have a solid team. I, I really appreciate the couples that are involved because it's, we've got a um, like married couples, but then also physicians and nurses who are part of this, who have a lot more credibility in that area sure. than I do, even with a, even as a, a certified teacher. But when you have someone who who is a medical professional saying, actually, birth control is not the best thing for you, or you know, it's a class one carcinogen. Here are all of the side effects. This is why this option is much better. Um, I have noticed a change um, in people, and for some, it has also been. Um, the start of a conversation. They're like, I'm still not on board. And I think yeah. that that's something, that's something we try to encourage couples with. You know, like if this is a teaching of the church that you struggle with, keep wrestling with it because that means you yeah. at least you haven't shut it down. Man, so, that's so true. Yeah. That's so true. And yet we oftentimes forget that, especially with, you know, kids as they get older and they kind of start asking their questions. I encourage all my kids to to really grapple with things, to ask questions, to never be, you know, embarrassed or ashamed to say, hey, I don't mm. get this or I don't or I don't agree with this. Right. right. But it's it's doing that. My um. My wife, who's a convert to the faith, had a similar experience when she was coming into the faith with confession. She, you know, it was one of her, mm. one of her issues was like, you know, I'm not going to confess to a man and go <laughs> right? straight to God. You've heard this before. Right. And, um, and what brought her in was an assent to what she believed was the authority of a church instituted mm. by Jesus, mm. not an agreement with the sacrament of confession. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't, she wouldn't say it that way, but that's exactly what it, what, what it was. It was yeah. like, look, I don't agree with this. 
<laughs> but it was almost like, you know, an analogy may have been getting married to me. It's like, you know, I said, we're going to get married in the Catholic Church. And at that point, she, you know, she joked. She said, I would have gotten married anyway, like jumping out of a plane on a beach. doesn't matter as long as I'm getting married to you. But the reality of it is, is that in, so in agreeing to that, right, God could work. And mm. to your point, right, kind of open exactly. up that, that aperture. Exactly. Um, but, you know, look, sometimes it's tough because we want people to get it, get it now. Right. Get it now. Understand right. it now. Exactly. And, we, exactly. and we forget that about them. Has it gotten harder for you or easier? Like, where are we in this culture conversation right now relative to some of these issues? That's a good question. I, it's been interesting to talk to folks about fertility awareness. And that's why I, I think I like using words like fertility awareness instead of NFP, um, because it affirms or it's, it, it fits with this like going green culture yeah. that we see. Like we are yeah. very concerned about organic chicken and organic milk and all of this and very trying to be very health conscious, trying to be very conscious of how we're impacting the environment. So there are couples that we have met, some of them not Catholic, um, that have said like, I'm interested in this because I see the impact that it's having on my body. Um, or mm. actually I had, oh, this was a recent conversation, uh, a man called me and he's like, my wife is, has been on birth control for, you know, so many years and I can see what it's doing to her and it's, it's impacting her health. And I just want to know like, what's a better option out there. And he's like, yes, we're trying to be good Catholics, but I'm really concerned about her health and affirming that in people that the desire is good. And especially with that, that like talking to that husband, um, that was, that was very impactful. Um, mm. cause that's, I mean, that's love, right? Just really yeah, wanting what's is. best for your spouse. So, so yeah, I see that going on and I, I'm hoping that, that we continue in, in that, um, in that direction. But I do think it's going to get more challenging because, um, I know that pharmaceutical companies are working on things that aren't going to be as, you know, physically damaging and they'll be like, oh, it'll be, um, it'll be even easier to uh, to to take birth control. So I think that's where we're really going to have to balance like the the science with the the theology and being able sure. to convey truth and the beauty of it. But that God wants what's best for you, right? God wants God wants you to be happy, and that this is. This is the way to that authentic happiness. I think that um, your idea of fertility awareness is brilliant, right? That kind of like lean into some of these things because yeah. you're right. There's wellness. There's all of this emphasis on and, and you know, appropriately so on taking care of yourself and the environment and being good stewards. And everybody focuses on that both in the secular and to some degree in the religious space. But when we when we think about it in the context of then going and taking to your point this class A carcinogen and putting it in your body, a lot of times the same folks who are in those camps of really being paying attention to wellness and the environment are also participating in mm-hmm. this behavior that's not good for them, right. just empirically not good for them, scientifically not good for them, but yet there's such this um, you know the power of culture. behind some of this. And given, you know, you're right at the intersection of these conversations. And that's why I'm curious. I feel sometimes I feel very optimistic when, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when I talk to people like you feel like, hey, we're, we're, we're good. And then, you know, other times it's just, it's just hard. You know, you look around and you're like, wow, you know, this is, it's really getting pretty, pretty tough out there. I mean, we know what the answer is, but nevertheless, we're in it. We're in the thick of it. 
At least that's how it feels. Exactly. And it'll be interesting to see, especially as Gen Z gets older. Like, I won't lie. Gen Z makes me a little nervous. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. They're very particular. Um, But children of God, love them. But the way that they have learned, like, what it means to be human, um, what marriage means, I don't know that that has been modeled well for them. Um, I Like, will they even come forward for marriage formation? So the, the church is going to need to to think about that very carefully. Like, the programs that we're using now, you know, 10 years from now, we're really going to need to be able to adapt and speak to our audience uh, more clearly. And be innovative, right? Mm-hmm. And again, speaking mm-hmm. to your audience is all about, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, it's all about knowing your audience. Exactly. And from a theological or spiritual standpoint, it's all about the sense of awareness and accompaniment, yes. knowing who people are. Yes. But um, the Gen Z thing, for sure, there's a <laughs> lot of very, very concerning data on that, especially, you know, tough things, right? Suicidality, mm-hmm. depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. all those things are off the charts. Their understanding of these fundamental concepts. I definitely take a lot of solace from the words of St. Paul when he talked, uh, I think it was in Romans, he talked about um, that some of the pagans, even though they haven't been taught, it's written on their heart, so they seek him out in in different ways. We can't forget that, right? That all souls are longing for their maker, and they're just trying to find their way there. But I feel, do you think, or, or what would you say about this, that, that on some level young people, uh, Gen Z, let's, let's focus on Gen Z for a second, in a way are sort of recreating religion by some of the things that, that, they, that they do? That's a, that's a good question. I see a hunger for something. I see a hunger for, and, and maybe it is like creating this, like not really sure what truth is. So I'm going to, I'm going to grasp and, and put it together and, and whatever makes sense to me right now. And you, you get into this like a relativistic mindset, mm-hmm. but I see a longing for truth and authenticity. Um, I gave a talk recently at a, at a middle school group and I, I don't usually talk to youth groups. I'm, I'm usually working with adults and I ended up calling my younger sister who works in youth ministry. And I was like, I don't know this audience as well as, as others. And she said, just tell them your story. Be authentic. Mm. Do not try to be something that you're not. Um, yeah. And that is how you're going to connect with this particular group. And I, I think that in the midst of, of that generation, you know, really striving, striving to be authentically themselves, but not understanding um, what that means. I, I think that's where that accompaniment piece comes in. And um, yeah, the authentic witness of just sharing stories, being very upfront and truthful and um, yeah, just being willing to walk alongside I mean, the authenticity plays in in those, you know, sectors or quadrants better to my mind because they're surrounded by so much, you know, packaged superficiality yeah. or packaged communications or, you know, yeah. um, that that it just it's so attractive when you see something mm-hmm. that's actually real, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it can kind of draw draw you to them. Do you think, um, you know, maybe staying on the subject of young people, the younger you go in the U.S. anyway, the younger you go, the more diverse the person gets. Right. I think the I think so. right right now, according to the U.S. census, folks under 18 in the U.S., 51 percent non-white. 
51. So that is the majority as of this moment. And in particular, a big driver of that is the Latino population. I know mm. that you've lived in Costa Rica. You've lived in yeah. Mexico. We should we should start uh, hablando español so we could, you know. <laughs> there you go. We could we could try out what you, what, what, you know, what, uh, what you picked up there in those countries. But how do you think this stuff, or maybe in your own work, in your own ministry, how does the things that we've been relating to apply to that evolving kind of, you know, demographic or the diversity of the church, and and mm. and how do you use some of your, um, you know, your your Hispanic know-how in particular as it relates to some of these subjects? Yeah, I, living abroad was such an impactful experience for me because it showed me that there is a bigger world. I mean, you know this that that there's 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 a bigger world outside of the U.S., but to be able to encounter people from a different culture and stepping into stepping out of my comfort zone and into um, another culture and receiving the beauty <laughs> that mm. those communities have to offer. Oh, that is such a refreshing experience. And even um, working in, or especially working in parish ministry, um, it is, it is a beautiful thing to see such a vibrant community. And I think that there's a lot that the church can learn from seeing this diversity and seeing the the vibrancy that comes from um, the the Spanish speaking communities that are and which are which are very diverse among themselves among themselves um, yeah. so just being able to um, to be receptive to that and to be like a willingness to learn um, like the emphasis on family um, in the Latino culture is, oh, oh gosh, it's, and food, <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. is beautiful, yeah. but like having conversations around meals, um, connecting or, or this, um, intergenerational gathering around the table, just, oh, I just think there's so much that the church can learn from those communities and, um, realizing that they, that we are one church that it's not, and, and I, I see that as a, a place where where we really have to be careful, especially in our um, in our bilingual parishes. That sometimes it can feel like, well, you have the English speaking parish and the Spanish speaking parish, but we all use the same building. But to yeah, realize so. there is so much that we can do when we are one parish, when we are working together, so much that we can learn from each other, even if language is a barrier. And I do consider it a great blessing to be bilingual. It's not perfect, but but to be bilingual and to be able to communicate in both in both communities, um, oh, that that has been it's been humbling and just so formative over the years. By the way, side side question: Do you do you have a Costa Rican or Mexican accent? I'm curious. <laughs> That's a good question. Probably more Mexican than Costa Rican since it's been so long since I was in Costa right. Rica. <laughs> did you did you learn? Did you pick up the language just academically, or you? I mean, you had immersion because you yeah. lived there. Yeah. So actually, in high school, I studied Spanish, and uh, when I went to college, I wanted to go to UD, University of Dallas, and they do mm. their Rome semester. So I thought that okay, I'll go to University of Memphis. For for a little while. So I need to take Italian because eventually I'm going to go to Rome. But when I took my Italian course, all I could remember was Spanish. So it's like, okay, I just need to, I just need to study Spanish. And so I had, I had professors from Spain, um, from Argentina. Um, mm. and then I did my study abroad and yeah, so, but the place that I really learned my Spanish was when I was living with 25 little girls in Saltillo, Coahuila, Mexico, <laughs> 
for a year uh, because I realized that my Spain vocabulary was not the same. Yeah, I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to cut it. Yeah. It's funny because my family's Colombian and, and, you know, I grew up obviously the first place I ever lived um, outside of the U.S. I was born in L.A., but we moved right away to Mexico. Um, My dad was in charge of the Latin Caribbean part of a big bank. Um, And we moved to Mexico City. Then we moved to Buenos Aires. Then we moved to Venezuela. Then we moved to the Caribbean. But in Venezuela, Mexico was my formative Spanish kind of experience. And to this day, you know, when I when I, I, I go to Colombia, when I visit my family, everybody tells me I have a Mexican accent. You know, the irony is that it, when I go to Mexico, sometimes they say I have a Colombian accent. So no that's one's ever funny. satisfied. But um, but that's cool. Do people like in your ministry when they find out that you're that you have that experience, when Latinos find out that you have that experience, mm-hmm. is there a, a change? Is there any any additional insight you gain? I think, from that? Well, it's funny because. Um, and I, I may have mentioned this when we originally connected the way that I look because I'm I'm black but I'm very light skinned but people don't know what box to put me in <laughs> they can't they know that I'm not white and then I speak Spanish and then they're like mm, what is she and I get I get asked a lot like where am I from mm-hmm. I'm like I'm right. Memphis <laughs> like. But if you if, if you were in the East Coast, they might think maybe you're Dominican, yeah, or they might think maybe that. maybe Puerto Rican. Exactly. Venezuela's got a a pretty significant contingent too. Exactly. Um, so, well, it doesn't been... hurt then. It doesn't hurt your ministry right. then for, to, no, to have it, that, it, that connection. It's a bridge. It's it's yeah, interesting sure. to be in a place of being able to be a bridge, and I that's a gift. I think. What is your family um, background? The the overall like mix of folks there in your family. Yeah, so both of my parents are Black Catholics. Uh, my mm-hmm. dad, my both my parents are from Atlanta, uh, and uh, my mom is a is a convert, and I have three younger sisters. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just growing up in Memphis, experiencing the diversity in Memphis itself, but being, I think we have always been. Um, part of the minority. Um, like I was the only black student in my graduating high school class. Uh, mm-hmm. And that has changed in Memphis over the years. But being at a Catholic school, that was my experience and my younger sisters as well. Like one of maybe a few um, black students in a, in a Catholic school. But I think that I think that that experience in kind of like the bubble of of mm. um, of our parish life or in Catholic school life, all of us going to University of Memphis, um, I think that really helped to expand our world and and to really appreciate the diversity among the the community in Memphis. Um, and yeah, just if that makes University- sense. University of Memphis is this just a it's a secular school, right? I'm, very, or, <laughs> very. Yeah. I've... Okay. Well, because I wanted to ask you about this because I remember you it may have been in one of the things I read. You mentioned that this experience of going to Memphis was it, it kind of you you really were sort of formed in your faith or yes. or reinforced in your faith. I've heard this from other people that they say if you really want to help your, you know, if you want to, you know, stamp your Catholic identity more forcefully, that actually maybe counterintuitively, that happens more when you go to sort of non-Catholic mm-hmm. uh, schools because you're almost like in a state of like defending the thing that you were brought up with. Is that, right. I mean, is that similar to what you experienced? Yeah, very much so. And it, and it was not my desire to go to University of Memphis, just some circumstances with our family's life. My mom had gotten really sick. I had originally mm. wanted to go play volleyball um, at a Catholic university, um, but I had a knee injury, like 
God is very good in how he yeah. he kept me in Memphis. But yeah, I remember taking philosophy classes and my philosophy of religion class was taught by an atheist. And that was it was kind I of a bizarre that. experience. <laughs> but I may I may have I may have you beat on bizarre on that bizarre, but I'll hold that thought for a second because oh, I had a similar situation. Was, but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, but just it was the first time in my life where I had to think about what do I believe? And at the mm. same time as going to Memphis, I was also working at a Christian bookstore. Um, and Memphis is like the buckle of the Bible belt. So lots of Baptists, um, lots of Baptist churches, like first, second, third, bigger, better Baptist sure. church, right? On, yep. on every corner um, in Memphis. And I remember that experience of like the first time someone asking me like, oh, are you Christian? Like, yeah, I'm Catholic, but are you Christian? Yeah. And having wow. people ask me things like, do Catholics celebrate what, Christmas? <laughs> and, like, and are you, what's your temperament like? Are you a person who responds like very just quick, like how dare you kind of thing? I mean, I don't mean it in a mean way. I just right, mean, are you, right. are you the, do you have the temper, temperament like mine where, where uh, what are you talking about? Right. Are, was, are Catholics Christians? We're the original right, Christians. What are you talking right. about? Well, I, or is it more of like, you know, probably the right way to do it pastorally and being very temperate with your response? <laughs> who, who, who are you? I had to learn. Um, I get very emotional because you hear people talk about how Mary had lots of kids or Mary was a sinner. And it's like, you're talking about my mama. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember getting really offended and I had to learn how to take a breath and ask questions. And I'm still learning that today, but it was the first time where I, I felt really defensive, but I didn't, I didn't know what to say immediately. So it, it was like, okay, sure. I need to learn how to engage in these conversations in the right way. Um, yeah, <laughs> but lots can of interesting catch you, encounters. It can catch you off guard when you come Very. across those things. You're like, what? what is it that I actually do say? Did you ever get into it with your atheist professor? I know I tried to fly under the radar as much, and I wish yeah. I could go back because now I, I feel like I have the tools that I need. But it really added, um, I think, ammunition to or motivation to learn my faith better. It's like, okay, if I'm going to have to sit through classes like this and knowing that people like this exist in the world who are going to bash St. Paul um, <laughs> for an entire semester, I need to be equipped to be able to have these types of conversations. Because I knew that eventually I wanted to study theology, um, but it and while my philosophy degree is not nearly as good as my husband's, because he studied at a at a seminary for a while, so his his philosophy was moving towards theology. I felt like mine was just kind of getting this mixed bag of here's how the world thinks <laughs> and mm. how we got to this point. So it was it was formative, but just realizing that okay, if I'm going to be Catholic. I need to know what I believe, and I need to um, I need to be able to articulate it better. It's amazing. God will use everything at His disposal, right, to exactly. kind of form us and 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 have us walk. And for you, it wasn't where you wanted to be, but it's where right. you ended up. And nevertheless, you were kind of fortified through that experience. Similar thing for me. In, in, you know, my college experience, state school. I went to Florida Atlantic University. I remember getting into it constantly with like my ethics professor and philosophy mm. professor. I was wa I had walked away from the faith. Really, I mean, I, I'd sort of faded from the faith during those mm. years. But I was here defending a lot of these things. I'm not even sure if you would have asked me then why I was doing it. If I would, if I would have told you, oh, it's because I'm Catholic. I was just defending like the pro-life position, defending mm -hmm. you know preferential options for the poor, things like that, without even knowing what they were. But I knew that what I was hearing wasn't necessarily the right way. I was in very little company, though. I will I'll promise you that. I think flying under the radar, which I also have done in my life, <laughs> but. Um, 
But I understand the reason for that because it, it, in, in a lot of cases, it would just be me, you know, in a group of yeah. angry people glaring at me yeah. about something that I'm, you know, not agreeing with the professor about. It's 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 a tricky place to be. Oh, for sure. My uh, I was just going to say my my uh, sort of I may have you beat on your your atheist philosophy <laughs> professor is that the book that we used in uh, formation um, for the diaconate for. It was uh, for the New Testament. Our New Testament book was written by Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist biblical scholar. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, he, did, he didn't start out atheist. He started off Christian. In fact, mm-hmm. he was a Christian pastor at one point, but he lost his faith. And, and he's, a, he's a super textual critic. I mean, the guy's like a genius, but like we couldn't find one guy who, you know what I mean, who's a Christian. I, I, just, I, I just couldn't believe that. But um, you mentioned something a second ago. I'm not going to let it pass by, that okay. your your husband was in seminary. Yes. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. He's <laughs> not, not your fault. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he was a seminarian, actually, for the Diocese of Tyler, where we are now. And mm-hmm. um, he really, and his story is is awesome, um, but for another time. But he, yeah. um, his last year and a half in seminary, he really felt like, I don't think this is where God wants me. Um, but mm-hmm. his bishop allowed him to continue uh, with formation because th- the bishop really saw it as investing in him as a person, which I really appreciate. Because now Michael, my husband, is teaching at the Catholic school here in the diocese. And all of that experience that he had, and I was just thinking, and as we were talking about, like, you know, stepping into, um, you know, secular institutions and being prepared to to articulate your faith, that's really something that he takes to heart when he's teaching his Mm. students is like, you need to understand why, like, we could have you memorize a whole bunch of stuff. um, But if you can understand why, if we can teach you how to think, um, then you're much more equipped to to be able to... uh, to encounter those things. So, so yeah, I met Michael after his, uh, his seminary days on, on Catholic match, shout out to them. Um, but yeah. (laughs) It works. Catholic match says, um, (laughs) well, you can always uh, say a little prayer to St. Philip and ask him if perhaps Michael's future, there's a future for Michael as a deacon. There you go. If you haven't already. I think so. I think, I think he has a call, but I'll I'll be patient. I I always add that when there's those, uh, those prayer intentions during mass or anywhere else, it's like, you know, we pray for more pre vocations to the priesthood and religious life. I always sneak in the diaconate too. You know what I mean? (laughs) Priesthood, diaconate, and religious yes, life, because it is, a, it is, it is, it's, it's, we need good deacons and it's its own ministry and its own yes. Uh, vocation. Yes. I wanted to ask you, um, cause you know, we, we talk about lots of things, right? Challenges and opportunities and things that we're happy about and, and excited about and hopeful for, but you know, in the life of ministry, of leadership, of, you know, doing things at a, at a high level that impact a lot of people, there's also, you know, failures and things mm. that you know, haven't happened well or according to our plan or, Mm -hmm. you know, that we've learned from. And I'm curious, you know, you talked earlier about about this idea of maybe not seeing people when they're in front of you, not Mm -hmm. accompanying them as well as you Mm -hmm. could have. And and maybe that's it. But can you think about, you know, some place where you've had that just the wings just fell off the thing and you just crashed and you had to kind of rebuild in terms of something that you've that you've done in ministry or otherwise? Yeah, I would say that um, one of the one of the bigger besides the accompaniment, um, one of the failures um, on my part has been making space at the table for others. And I think especially as women, women in ministry, but I think it's also in the in the secular field. Um, I think of specifically when when I was working in parish life, 
like almost looking at ministry as um, like being protective of it or seeing it as like, this is mine and Mm -hmm. not making a space Mm. for others to collaborate or if that makes sense, like not affirming the gifts that others have that, that could bring something to the table or, or taking the time to listen to others or thinking like, Oh, this is my ministry. I know everything about it. And there's always a temptation to fall back into it. But I, but working in parish, those first couple of years, I think um, working in parish life, really feeling territorial. um, And there Mm. were, I think there was a real missed opportunity to, to be able to, to grow the, or minister to the needs of the parish because I was so focused on like this is mine and I I I don't want to to work with a particular person or personality sure. and and yeah I try to keep that in mind moving forward. Was there something in particular that helped you kind of turn the corner a bit on that on that thought process? I think what what has been helpful is seeing how I cannot do everything. <laughs> I I have gifts that that I can bring to the table, but seeing how or thinking about how when when we came here and the beginnings of the St. Philip Institute and starting marriage formation from scratch, I realized I'm I'm stepping into this. I'm new to the diocese. I can't do this by myself. So being able to bring the expertise from folks who are like boots on the ground who have been working with couples for much longer than I have. And being able to collaborate and pray together and discern together where it's not just me, um, I think that, that that experience has helped me to, to kind of surrender, like, okay, this, this ministry is bigger than Deanna, um, sure. it, and it will hopefully exist long after <laughs> I, I leave this office. Um, but yeah, that when, when we allow for, for God's gifts to be, to be used together, like so much more can happen. No question. Uh, uh, you know, I wanted to ma- also make sure that we covered off as we kind of round out the episode here, the fact that you're out there, you know, s- sharing stories and uh, providing perspective on faith and family through your own podcast, Life yeah. Beyond the Chariot. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to, I've seen a little bit of, I haven't watched, because you have a video podcast, which by the way is beautifully produced, oh, by the way. Oh, thank you. Just FYI, in addition to your to the audio version of it as well. But I wanted to give you a space to chat a little bit about that podcast. My first question is, is it the chariot from Elijah? Is that the chariot? No, Which it's is the actually chariot? the, and we've, we've actually been talking about that. Like how, how do people, how do we share the, the chariot? So the chariot is in reference to St. Philip, the deacon and the Ethiopian. So in that story, in Acts 8, he's, yeah, he's the Ethiopian in the chari- invites yeah. St. Philip into his chariot so into that he chariot. can teach him. And the thinking is that, you know, after the Ethiopian had St. Philip in his chariot, he at some point had to get out of the chariot and really had to to live his life. Um, and so a lot of times we can have this emphasis on catechesis, but knowing, how, okay, how does that apply to my life after I've left mm. RCIA or I've received my sacraments? How do I put the faith in action in my day-to-day life as a wife, as a mother, as a dad, um, as a husband, all of that. Like, how do I apply the experience of, of being a Catholic to just living my vocation? So in that uh, podcast, Mickey Siba, my um, co-host, um, and I really talk about 
um, just the lived experience of the faith. How do we, so we know all of these beautiful teachings, these truths of the faith, but what does that look like in uh, in the messiness of, of day-to-day life? How, how are we God's disciples, um, Christ's disciples, when life is not as clean cut? Um, so that is what Life Beyond the Chariot really aims to have a conversation about. It makes sense. I, I, it, I literally thought, I was like, okay, it can't be the chariots from Pharaoh, because right. that would have been, that kind of be a bad <laughs> right. context. The Elijah one, I couldn't understand why right. we'd be moving beyond it. So thank you for, and of course, I missed the Philip one, which I already, like, that's the most obvious one, but that just explains who I am, Dina. No, I'm the guy okay. who misses the obvious No, we're working thing on that right brain thing and all that. Yes. <laughs> I love I love it. How do you like being a podcast host? Oh, it's been fun. It's been fun. And Mickey is delightful. If you can watch mm-hmm. the the podcast on YouTube or on um, Apple Podcasts, but it's really just having a conversation with um, another mom. And we talked mm-hmm. about accompaniment in the very beginning. So having another mom who is Catholic, who is going through similar struggles as me, um, that has been very encouraging. So it's really just a space for for Mickey and I to to really just chat. And I learned so much from her. <laughs> like I just sure. I feel nourished from from those conversations. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a grace and a blessing to be able to do that. And we'll include, um, you know, links in the show notes to Life Beyond the Chariot, you. where you're li- your newest subscribers already. So, um, but we'll make sure that folks can uh, can do that. How else can folks before we, you know, get to our quick round of uh, quick fire questions here? How else can folks get in contact with you with the same Philip Institute? How can they follow what you're doing? Yeah. So if you go to stphilipinstitute.org and it's Philip with one L, um, you can see everything that the Institute is doing. I am in the family life department. Um, if you go to the website, you can see our speaker page, learn more about the staff there, the talks that we give, uh, the different ministries that we're providing. And a lot of our work is focused on the Diocese of Tyler, but also having that desire to support others, um, other parishes, other dioceses and their ministries as well. Uh, but yeah, that's the best place to to find us. And then, um, yeah, yeah, Facebook, well, uh, same thing, Instagram, all those cool places. Well, just in preparing for this show and just researching the Institute, I can tell you it's a, it, it's a great, um, obviously credit to the people of, of Tyler and, and a great, you know, benefit also. You know, and I know it's uh, the the vision of 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 your bishop, Bishop Strickland, who's you know very very powerful voice in the culture right, right now. Um, right. And so you guys are doing great work. Thank you. And uh, definitely, I'm happy to keep uh, keep tracking against all of that. All right, Deanna, are you ready to play our rapid fire round of questions? <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Question number one: Of Saltillo, Mexico, San Jose, Costa Rica, or Memphis, Tennessee? Which has the best use of chicken in a spicy recipe? Oh my goodness! Um, probably, I mm, I gotta say Memphis. Gotta stay true to my my barbecue roots. <laughs> You're gonna go barbecue, yeah? I thought you were gonna go hot chicken, like uh, yeah. Nashville hot chicken. No, not not so. No, much. no, Nash Vegas is different. <laughs> it's definitely uh, taking over the country, though. There's hot chicken everywhere. People That's have forgotten true. it's from Tennessee. That's All right, true. very good. Question number two. True or false? With child number one, you're a nervous wreck. With two kids, life becomes near impossible. By the third kid, things plateau. And by the fourth, life counterintuitively gets easier. <laughs> um, true-ish. 
uh, life gets more interesting and I don't freak out as much about things at the more children that we have. <laughs> nice, nice. That's what I found when we had our foster kids living with us. We had five in the house at one point. It was just like, I don't know. I, I felt it kind of got a little bit more right. calm in a you weird You got a snack way. off the floor? That's fine. It's exactly. It's fine. That works. <laughs> Wherever fine. you get your sustenance from. <laughs> All right. All right, Deanna. Ready for the last question yes. here. Uh, lastly, if Bishop Strickland took the following dance classes, tango, merengue, or swing, in which would he most excel? Swing, definitely. I think I think he's got it in him. He's got the swing in him? He's got I that think kind so. of... I could kind of see him doing that. Put the miter yeah. to the side and just kind of do I a little bit so. of a... I, I think, think it, so. I think it would be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I think so. <laughs> Deanna, thank you so much for, obviously, for playing that game, but for being on the show. Um, really, obviously, appreciate uh, you coming on and want to make sure that everybody knows to follow your work and also just great blessings and prosperity on all of your ministries that you're doing there with St. Philip Institute and in the Diocese of Tyler and all the work that you're doing with NFP and helping young couples. Um, I think it's awesome. Clearly, it's uh, it's the kind of best stuff anybody, anybody could be doing in terms of helping families to thrive. So I really do wish uh, you and hope for, for you and your family and, and everybody there great prosperity and uh, just wanted to thank you for being part of Living the Call. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the great work that you're doing. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.